Well, hey, good morning, Grace. We are back studying the life of David. If you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Many of you know what that means. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Top answers, fill in the blank. David and Goliath. Next answer, David and Bathsheba. That's a story that we're going to look at today. And uh, Matthew Henry has a wonderful commentary on this section. And he says that this story of David is a funeral. It is a dirge. He says the, the uh, eulogy that was given to Saul and Jonathan, let not it be said to Ashkelon and uh, in the streets of Gath, you know, bad guys, capital cities, that these men have died. Let, let it not be said that David has done this, that people outside of the faith might mock God and his people because of it. And then he says, these stories are written for the instruction and particularly for those who think that they stand lest they fall. Other people's sorrows are to be warnings for us. Other people's pain are to be warnings for us. David, the one-time great defender of the weak, is now a bully. David is known for his generosity, giving. Now he'll take, and he'll take what does not belong to him. And maybe, actually not maybe at all, the most frightening lesson we're going to learn today is this descent, just how natural it is. And by natural, I mean sin nature. Sin nature in all of us puts us on this road to perdition that unless, <laughs> unless we're diligent, we will destroy our own lives. There are a thousand different roads, you can call them all, one lanes in the superhighway of the road to ruin, including the various, so that we can modify based on our temperaments, our personalities, even our life history, but they have this common theme, we all end up saying one way or another what David's going to say here. It's like, I, I had this coming to me. Now it's my turn. Look at all I've done. I want to get a little something back. I'm in charge now. I'm the one that gets to call the shots. And we say to our conscience, be still. I want you to listen carefully. I'll point it out to you, but there's, there's four forks in the road in this story for David to change the trajectory of his life. There are four exit ramps on this highway to hell. There's four different chances where David could end his self-centeredness and repent and return to a, some normal, and he fails. Today's a funeral for anyone who still has bright-eyed naivete that think that that you have to be a bad guy to be able to bring total destruction to things that are good and true and beautiful. Oh, gosh, no. The capacity for nuclear evil is in the hearts and souls of every human being, saved and non-saved. Today, it, what's frightening is how easy and simple the transition and change from this icon of righteousness to this villain that's nothing more than a thug. 
If you remember the story that we looked at last week, 2 Samuel, it's all in there, but 2 Samuel 5 to 10 is Camelot. It is the high water mark of the Older Testament, in some respects, human civilization, where you have a righteous king leading a righteous na- nation with a beautiful capital city that belongs to God, Jerusalem, all with the presence of the righteous Jehovah speaking to his people through his priest and his king. And this great Camelot, its glory is balancing on the head of a pen. It's frail. You think it's strong, but it's not. The word of the day I want you to take notice to is the word sent. Sent will be used 23 times in chapters 11 or 10, 11, and 12. And the reason it is is the author wants us to see that that word sent or send is a word of someone expressing power. It is, it, it is, it is the premeditated, deliberate moving of people as though you are a chess master moving pieces on a board because you can it's not good or bad it's just authority it's given to you by God and it's going to be used in this case in David's case not so good in chapter 10 it ends with David defeating another set of enemies of Israel and all is well in the kingdom of God And then we turn the page in chapter 11, verse 1, all is not well within the king, within the soul of that king. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, in one sentence, the author is going to try to emphasize, he's going to do this three different ways. He's going to say, you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, David. Three different ways of projecting to David, and he should be listening to this, saying, get out, danger. Look what he says. Verse 1, here's the first time he says it. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent, there's that power word again, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, he remained literally sitting in Jerusalem. David, the good shepherd that serves his flock, is going to be defeated, not in a battlefield of war, but in a battlefield where he was never supposed to be in the first place. First part was in in the spring when kings go out to war. Go to war, David. This is what you're supposed to do. And somewhere in David's mind, he felt he became the exception. It happens... Every time, there's the word, I'm exceptional. The men and women I've known, the boys and girls over 40 years of ministry and just watching life, that word finds its way into people's values and they just think they're different. They'll say maybe, like, look what I have done. I mean, look, look at my giving, look at my service, look at the ministry. I'm gonna use all of that those exceptional acts of mine to justify any behavior I want. I can man, now I can become a taker. Sometimes I've heard this said multiple times. I'm an exception. I can burn the candle at both ends. That won't hurt me. Or a version of that is I'm exceptional. I've done all that burning of the candle at both ends, and now it's my turn to sleep in. Now I get the rest. Now I can just send. 
I'll have other people do what God has given me the responsibility to do. And in this, in this one sentence, David shows this value right here. When kings go out to war, look at all I've done. You guys read 5 through 10, right? I mean, did you go to the sermon last week? I mean, that was me. I did that. So this spring, I'm just going to stay here. The second way, uh, the, the, this, even this first sentence is showing that David's heart and soul is rotting from within, is it said, he says the word sent. And look at, who, look at everybody he sent. And he sent Joab and all the king's men and the entire Israeli army. <laughs> are, you, are you listening? <laughs> like, can you picture who's left in Jerusalem? There's like four old guys in the retirement home and everyone else is females. David sends every able-bodied male out of town, and he's going to chaperone the women. Oh, what could happen? What could possibly happen? Oh, good. And then a third way this writer wants us to know that David's heart has now turned towards vanity is the verbs that are being used in contrast to one another. It says that the troops, the men, Joab and the guys, they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged the city. But David was sitting in the palace. <laughs> it's just screaming off the page here. These are warnings one after another, and they're warnings for us. Like, are you on a battlefield where you were never meant to be? Where you don't have a chance in the world of winning? And it sounds like it's subtle, but you know, when you, <laughs> when you hear it in somebody else's life, you want to just like slap them and going, what? What were you doing there then? But when we do it in our own life, somehow we think, oh, we're exceptions, so it doesn't, you know, what could happen? It's on me. You know, uh, at this year's Halloween party, Betty sent her husband with her children home and stayed till almost the very end. <laughs> or uh, at the annual sales convention, John, um, at the big fancy resort, John uh, sent his sales team to the after party, but stayed back to spend some extra time with the vice president of sales, Rhonda. And your friend is telling you this, and you're saying, what? <laughs> In the spring, when kings go out to war, you were where? Well, the, what you would predict happens here, uh, verse 2, and one evening... David got up from his bed, that's where he sleeps on a bed, he walked around on the roof of the palace, and he's going to work his way through the big three categories of sin that are described in the Newer Testament, or the, the lust of the eyes are going to lead to the lust of the flesh and give birth to the pride of life. And here it is, this once protector of the weak will now bully the weak, because he can Verse continues, it says, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, uh, isn't this Bathsheba, like the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? His answer is not typical of a person responding to a simple question to a king. This is as close to a confrontation as you will see between a servant and a monarch. 
He's telling David, stop, right here, right now. Isn't this Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Iliam? He's just going to go through the family tree. Do you know who we're talking about here? Because Iliam is going to be in a list later on in 2 Samuel chapter 23, when there's this list of all the men of valor and honor. These are the called David's mighty men. Hebrew, the Gibberine. These are men that have risked their very lives and given their safety and for the sake of protecting God's king and God's kingdom. That list in chapter 23 is just a list of men receiving the highest honor in our military would be the Medal of Honor. And that's Iliam, Bathsheba's father. And it said, isn't this Bathsheba? Uh, he's, she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Bing, 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 Uriah the Hittite. He's, he's always going to be described as the Hittite because he's not Jewish. He comes over because he, he's drawn to the nature of Jehovah and his, the way he blesses Israel. And his name means the Lord. Yahweh is my light. That list of Medal of Honor winners in chapter 23, yeah, Uriah's on that list as well. He's received that because of his valor and because of his honor. And you wonder, well, how did, how did he end up with Bathsheba? I'll, you know, maybe Iliam was team chief and they were on a mission and he saw Uriah do what he does and he saw his great courage, his honor, his love for God, and he said, you know, I have a daughter that is worthy of your husbanding. That must have been some wedding, right? And, 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 and what's interesting, there's, there's a third member of the family, Iliam's father, so it's the grandfather of Bathsheba, is a man named Ahithophel. I'll tell you that because Ahithophel is one of the primary counselors to King David. When David is trying to find out the wisdom of God, he will go to Ahithophel. So we have Bathsheba's father is a military hero as, as well as her husband, and then her grandfather is a man of wisdom. And so, who is this woman? And the answer is, you know her, David. You went to the wedding. I mean, everyone was there. It was right there at, at the Naval Academy at Bethesda, or I'm sorry, at uh, Annapolis. We were out there on the lawn. There have never been so many blue ribbons with five-point stars in the history of our nation gathered at one place. And so this is David's second big chance to change his location and change his, his trajectory. He should have, shouldn't have been in Jerusalem. That was his first chance to repent. And now this warning, hey, this woman is from a family of noble men that serve you and will give their very life for the kingdom and for your life. So there's their trusted soldiers. And this is a chance for David to just get slapped in the face with a cold plunge and go, thank you, servant man. What was I thinking? And why am I here? And why am I looking at a woman bathe from my balcony? You're right. Pack my bags. I'm going to war. A line is drawn. And if he crosses that line, the road steepens to darkness. The word of the day, David sends. Verse 4 and then David sent messengers and, he, and took her. And she came to him, and he slept with her, and she went back home. Boom, boom, boom. He sent for her. her his conscience was screaming. The time it takes to 
go send the royal chariot and come back, roaring inside of his head, David, 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 what? No, don't do this. Just leave. Lock the doors. You don't have to go through with this. And then David says, shut up, conscience. Be still. Stand down. And <laughs> fear this about the nature of, of the Holy Spirit. He's polite. He will comply. And so, fine. Go and do what you want to do. David sent the messengers. It's showing he's, he has power, that he's a bully. He sends out, he comes back, and just, just to know what's happening in this story, there's nobody making love here. He had sex with her. There's no affair. He doesn't call her. There's no relationship. She's pretty. I want her. I deserve her. That's it. Doesn't even call her by name. One time her name will be used in the whole story. She will be called the woman. And the only person that calls her Bathsheba is this servant that tried to stop it in the first place. It's like the proverb that says, the way of the adulterous, the adulterous person, they eat and they wipe their mouth and they say, I have done nothing wrong. His 20 minutes is up. He sends her home. Tongue-in-cheek humor for a Hebrew kind of sense of humor. Guess who's sending now? Next sentence says, and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. This is the third exit ramp for David to get off while he still can. The road to perdition is still a good distance away. And if he just changes right now, just stop here. I can't go on any further. I did this. I will take responsibility. I'll give up the crown and the throne if the Lord wants me to do that, but I just need to be right. I need to be right with you, your husband, and the Lord himself. Or he can accelerate down this steepening trajectory to the fateful destruction of his soul. He's just going to double down. And I want you to note this, that from this point forward, all the decisions made by David are going to be to protect his precious reputation, to make sure people still think that he's the good and the righteous king. And he loves that re reputation so much. He is out to save face that he'll pay whatever it costs. He wants to be known as King David, God's king, God's righteous king, King Arthur, the pride of life. This is it, the pride of life. I want to know. I want people to like me and to think well of me. And right at this moment, David is joining the great fraternity of hypocrites. When, you, when people think you're like right here in the context of character and morals and reputation, but you know you're down here, that gap is a lie. And how did that gap get there? Usually, the person is manipulating and conniving and using them, their own right, press to make sure they stay up there. And that's what David's doing now. David's humility is rotten completely. And now his pride is free to roam. And this is what his pride is going to do. 
to maintain his reputation. He's going to keep this thing going. When I was in, uh, in working on my doctorate, one of the best classes I've had in my life was called uh, Pastor as a Crisis Counselor. And the man teaching it had been in ministry for maybe 70 years. And so he just called in a lot of favors. Flew him into Los Angeles and we sat down and these were people that experienced life-altering crises. Sometimes because of illness, uh, a death of a loved one, betrayal, unjust accusations. But there were three people that self-inflicted ruin in their life. And one of them I was familiar with, everybody was familiar with. He was a pastor of a huge church out in Los Angeles, like 15,000, 20,000 people attending on any given Sunday, very expansive radio ministry, the books, all that sort of thing. And so he tells a story about how because of the success that he'd been propelled into, the, the stress was causing all sorts of cracks and, and quakes in his soul and at night. At, on Saturday night, to get ready for Sunday morning, one of the things he would do is just go for long drives. And that is tranquilizing at times. And also it lets you think through your sermon and what you might be saying the next day. Did it every Saturday night. On one Saturday night, he stopped on a street corner and asked a prostitute to come in the car with him. And he experienced in those few minutes the most exhilarating guilt-inflicted adrenaline rush that he'd ever had in his entire life. And then he continued to say that he did that again for 18 months. End of story. Now it's Q&A time. <laughs> like everybody's like, I want, I, want to, I want to hear, how did you do that? And he said, here's, here what, here's what happened. First night, I was scared, and I, I couldn't believe what just happened. I came home. I sweat through the sheets. I cried myself all through the night and didn't sleep not one minute, but I had resolved that I'm going to start tomorrow, I'm going to walk up those stairs, and I'm going to look the people in the eye and tell them what had happened and, and resign. So the next day, he got up, walked up the stairs, the lights hit him in the face, he heard his voice over the sound system, and then he just gave the sermon that he was supposed to give. And on his ride home, he said to himself, I can have both. I can, I can visit prostitutes on Saturday and preach on Sunday. He said, I, I did, the, the hypocrisy and the duplicity became normative for me. So I did a sermon, sermon series on addiction, and it was the most popular one I had done in maybe a decade. People were saying, like, you're reading my mind. And he thought, I'm reading my diary. So here's what happens. David is trying to get himself out of this problem, so he's going to send to have Uriah come back to Jerusalem and spend some time with him that he might spend time with his lovely wife. They'd enjoy a night of love together, and then they would think the baby came a month early, but it's his, and they're just hoping, hoping, hoping he doesn't have red hair and blue eyes to look a little bit too much like the king. At this point, David's parachute of life has failed him, and he's in a free fall. How the mighty have fallen. This is the death of Camelot. It's the death of a king. Because this point in David's life, this is David, who has defended the honor, the integrity, and the righteousness of God against, against giants 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He knew no one could challenge God. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in just the name of the Lord God Almighty. And now David thinks he can face Jehovah down and live this double life? (laughs) At this point, David's mad. He's insane. He's connecting. God said, don't connect. He thinks he can have his cake and eat it too. This is David the bully. All the, the power and the resources that God gave him, raised him up from a shepherd, so that he can give and he can serve and protect. Now, watch what happens. He's going to use that power to send, send, send. Three times in a single sentence. And so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Has Uriah come and join him in the palace? Hey, let's have a quick interview. I'm just wondering, how's Joab? Don't care. Uh, how's the army? God still don't care. Uh, how's the war going? Fine. Great. Yeah, small talk. Hey, you know what? Now that you're here, why don't you go home and wash your feet? Yes, that's a Hebrew phrase for enjoy your wife. And it says, and, the Lord, and, and David sent him home with gifts. Bubble bath. You go have yourself a great time. You've earned it. It's all going to work great. Just do what any good soldier on leave would do. However, <laughs> that's the next word. However, oh, the plans of mice and men. However, Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And then David, when he was told, he said, Uriah did not go home. He asked him, haven't you just come from a great distance? Why didn't you go home? You have a very beautiful wife. So I've been told. What were you thinking? And this part of the passage is a master class in storytelling. Because at this point, all the story has been kind of rapid fire succession, short sentences, quick actions, not a lot of, of, of speaking. And now, Uriah's going to answer the question, why didn't he go home? This is the longest soliloquy in chapter 11, and it's to heighten, it's to slow everything down, and, and it's to heighten the character and the goodness of Uriah in contrast to David. Uriah the Hittite, the foreigner. And four times in his answer, he kind of is saying, David, you should be out on the battlefield when kings go out to war. He's not doing it to punch David. He's just saying these things that are true. But each one of these things is a zing to, why are you in Jerusalem now? Here's here's Uriah's answer. And Uriah said to David, well, the, the ark and Israel, they're staying in tents. My master Joab and the Lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as surely as you live? I would not do such a thing. What kind of able-bodied man would be missing out on a battlefield experience? Everyone and everything, even the tent, even, I'm sorry, even the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. I don't know anyone that's not on duty right now. (laughs) David projected his entitlement onto Uriah. And Uriah is not entitled. He's grateful. And he won't use his power to get what 
he ought to get. He's going to do it to serve God's kingdom and God's king. And so David says, okay, um, why don't you spend one more night? I'll send you back. Why don't you have dinner with me? And David's setting him up. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drink. When the king says drink, you drink. But in the evening, in that evening, Uriah went out and to sleep on his mat among the master servants and did not go home. And this is the pinnacle of the character contrast between David and Uriah. The characters are being contrasted by their caricature. One has character and one does not. Seven times it says Uriah the Hittite. Seven times it mentions that he's not from Israel. He's following and serving and giving honor to the Lord and his nation. David is from Judah, and everything he has has been given from God, handpicked. And it's, the repetition is exaggerating this contrast. And now with this last part of the story, here's what it's saying. Uriah the Hittite, drunk, is more pious than David, sober. Uh, the mighty have fallen. And this is David's fourth and final chance to be convicted by all that's happening around him. He hears Uriah give that answer, <laughs> and he just says, your, your honor, your integrity, your holiness is crushing my guilty spirit. I can't live this way anymore. Uriah, come like, ah, here's what I've done. I've sinned against you and your wife and against the holiness of God. I'll do whatever. Face down, I just want to start all over again. Oh, I want to go back in time. When kings go to war in the spring, that's not what happens. He's all in. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And he wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. King Arthur is dead. This is not the David we even know or had fears that could happen. And you know, you know what's interesting? You know why this plan works? It's because of the nobility and honor of Uriah the Hittite doesn't even open the letter that's his assassination letter. Because of his honesty, he brings that to Joab, and Joab obeys, and he sends Uriah and some of his platoon into some ridiculous battle plan, then withdraws enough people to have that whole group of people die pointlessly. And everyone knows this. Everyone knows a good battle plan from a battle, bad battle plan, and this was murder. Every man on that, on that battlefield knew that. And that funeral, whoo, Arlington National Cemetery, six caskets, let's say, that's how many died, Certainly Uriah, but there was collateral damage. Six caskets with flags, and one, that beautiful baby blue ribbon, and that five-point star, Medal of Honor, that's Uriah. And in the crowd, his fellow soldiers, more Medal of Honor recipients, his band of brothers, his team members, 
and they're all confused. And the ones that are thinkers, they're not confused. They're angry. I mean, the tombstones are just vibrating. They know that these men were set up. They, there was a conspiracy to kill these men. They were betrayed by their king and by their commanding officer, Joab. You can bet Iliam, the father of Bathsheba, the chief, the officer in overseeing the special forces, I'm sure he saw the debrief and saw, what, saw for what it was. He's at this funeral. He's grinding his teeth and staring at Joab. He's making a terminal list. He knows what happened. How about Ahithophel, remember his grandfather of Bathsheba, the advisor to the king? It just smacks of treason that's taken place here. And in a few short years, there will be a mutiny that will take place. One of David's own sons will become, will run David out of town, become king, and Ahithophel will have to choose between King David and the mutiner, the treasonous son. And Ahithophel says, Something is rotten in Jerusalem. I'll take this one before I'll take that killer of my grandson in law. Ithafeld is the pastor on call. He's doing this funeral. He says, Let's close in prayer. And everybody bows their head. And David looks up and out of the corner of his eye, looks at Bathsheba. And Bathsheba looks up at the corner of her eyes, and they connect. And across the caskets is Joab looking at both of them. There will not be a united kingdom ever again. Now it's Macbeth and Hamlet. And Verse 27, after the time of mourning was over, David had her, her, the woman, brought to his house, and she became his wife, and they bore him a son. They did it. Home free. This bully can have his cake and eat it too. Ha <laughs> ha. Reputation intact with a little, you know, some mumblings, some gossip, but sure. Anybody notice uh, a missing character in the storyline? Anybody keep keep people in the story of God's redemption so far? Jehovah. Not one time is mentioned. Not one time. No one's consulting Jehovah in this mess. It's like David is thinking, like the old, old country song, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. The last sentence of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, someone does know what goes on behind closed doors. Months go by, and David's living his new normal. He's got Bathsheba as a wife now. People say he's really restless at night now, and he drinks a lot more wine than he used to when he gets started a lot sooner, but hey, it's all good. It's all good. We're just going to carry on. There's four lessons I want us to learn from this passage that I think jump off the page, but I think we probably all need to be reminded of it. First is the look at the high cost of sin. We'll continue the series together, but I want you to see uh, sin is way more expensive than you and I are able to pay for it. There's one verse committed to this act of adultery. There are eight chapters that will follow 
nothing but death and destruction. This one night is going to lead to generational trauma. There's a high cost of sin, and you can't afford to pay that. I think if any one of us just said, I'm going to go do this sin. Let's get out a pad of paper, and I'll just count how much it's going to cost. That's, that alone will say, whoa, let's not. Second would be that men and women don't fall into sin. That's, that's the key. Men and women do not fall into sin. They erode. We rot slowly from the inside out. It's like that oak tree right in the middle of our courtyard, a 200-something-year-old oak tree that all of us thought was healthy and doing great till that ice storm, and then it cracks and splits open. It's like, oh, dear God, thank you that we weren't bouncing on that tree. It was already dead. God knew it. The tree knew it. We didn't. It's not a story of adultery. This is the story of the gentle decline into ruin. Uh, Jesus would say the deceitfulness of riches right, and, and the worries of the world. And I love how it's like the deceitfulness of riches. Riches don't ring your doorbell and say, hey, uh, you want to be successful? Oh, awesome. Uh, just give me your soul. No, no, it's just, it just creeps in slowly. You think you're doing the right thing, but you might be doing it for the wrong reason. And... and, and this story is frightening for us because if this happens to David, there's that death of our naivete that David can kill and destroy what is good and beautiful and true, then, yeah, us. And so that leads us to um, third lesson is innocence must be maintained. Hear this, listen carefully about the frailty of a tender heart towards God. The fragility of our ability to hear the Spirit's voice and guide us and direct us. There is, let me say another way. There is nothing more precious than a clear conscience. I'm using the word precious on purpose. There's nothing more precious than a clear conscience. To lay your head on a pillow every night and be at peace with God and at peace with men. And to know you're in the right place and you can hear His voice. And it is so precious that you would pay anything and everything to maintain that innocence. Rewind, interview David after the fact, his Saturday night, Sunday morning hypocrisy. What would you pay to get in a DeLorean and go back in time and pick up and go to war? He'd pay anything and everything, arm and a leg, whatever it costs. There's a great sentence to remember. Memorize this. You will be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You will be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And in David's case, the, the, the lesson for us in so many ways is like you have to kill the sin when it's early, when it's young, before it has too much power over us. Right? It's like, what's the best way to kill an oak tree? Squash it when it's an acorn. <laughs> we all hate cedar trees. Pull it up when it's a sapling. You don't need to get a root grinder now. You deal with underlying values while they're bouncing around in your soul, and instead of entertaining them, you destroy them with God's values. So in, instead of like fantasizing about revenge or even sexual uh, you know, exchanges, whatever the word might be, instead of entertaining that, stop those thoughts. Instead of being dedicated jealousy and envy, 
and feeding that demon inside of you. How about you memorize words from God's word? We should have no tolerance towards self-absorption and vanity. How long are we going to spend in front of a mirror before it's the spring when kings go to war? We, have a, we should have a no tolerance value. You see that in schools, right? No tolerance, zero tolerance on this, on sin. Because if we're not killing sin, sin is killing us. And there's nothing more precious than a clear conscience. That's what David would say. Whatever it costs, pay it. It's cheaper than the cost of sin. If you're thinking in this storyline, particularly to even prevent something like this in your own life, and you're thinking, gosh, how did this happen? How did David get to a place where he's taking another woman and then killing her husband? Wasn't he the giant killer? Wasn't he the one standing up for the righteousness of God? Wasn't he the giver and the protector? How did Dr. Jekyll turn into Mr. Hyde so quickly? The lesson is not how it happened. You're miss, you're, I mean, miss, missing the point. The question is when. When did it happen? When did the rot start in David? Because if you think it, it started at the rooftop, oh, no, no. He was dead already. He was a dead man walking on the roof at the wrong time. It started when his heart began to meditate on the value that he was exceptional, that he was different. I mean, look at all the service and the giving and the generosity. I'm God's king and God's city with God's presence. That'd be me. I'm the exception. I get to do stuff other people don't get to do. I've been burning the candle at both ends. One's in my turn. When do I get to put my feet up and rest? When other kings go to war in the spring, but then there's me. That's the day it happened. That spring, that first day of spring, when he's having this leisurely breakfast while everybody else is saddling up horses, <laughs> he's on his balcony waving to Joab and all the king's men and the entire Israeli army. He was dead before dinner. That's not when it happened. It happened when he began entertaining some kind of view that he wanted something. Maybe it was a good thing, but he wanted it too much. A good thing becomes a great thing, becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes an idol. It will destroy you. Idols eat their prey, their worshipers. My original introduction was a list of all the men and women over my career that I have had turned into heroes and um, they're lost. And it was just a, such a sad list that I couldn't, I couldn't mention them. It, it's been, it, it, I don't know, it's just, gosh, just finish well. Certainly one of the saddest stories and my personal experience is with, I'm going to call her, uh, what, what did I nickname her, Debbie. And she's an old dear friend, and she loves the Lord and loves serving the church when she was working. She and her husband, they did great things here at Grace, changed our whole trajectory of our church for the better, and super tender-hearted, almost fragile towards, her, towards other people and towards God. And then their marriage kind of hit the skids for a while where he was working all the time and kind of neglecting her and she was running with the kids, doing all that kind of stuff. 
And she put on a little weight, and she was kind of known for being pretty, pretty, very beautiful. Anyway, the point was that she was feeling like she was neglected, not desired or valued. And that, those are all good things. And as a wife, she, she should have those things. She shouldn't be neglected. She should be desired. She should be valued. And it just wasn't happening. And she's meditating on these things, and they become, they transition from good to great things, and they become ultimate things. They became idols. She wanted them too much. And there was a bag boy, a bag boy at the grocery store that loved to wait on her. And he would tell her how attractive she was and how valuable she must be to everyone that she touches and how she must have a very lucky husband waiting at home. She liked going to that store and having him bag her groceries again and again and again. She was on a battlefield she should never have been on. And then in the spring, when all the groceries were in her car, she stopped and stared, and it turned into something that scared her more than she'd bargained for. And she didn't know how it happened. She was asking how, and she should have been asking when. When did it happen? When she was holding on to values that have become sinful, and if you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. And it's just looking for a place. It's just looking for a place to express itself. If it can happen to Debbie, it can happen to me. And all the heroes that have tripped and fallen before me, I hope you don't trust yourself. I hope you're living every day on the edge, one day at a time. Anybody, one day at a time? You know what that means? Yeah, we're all addicted to something. The story of chapter 11 is all about power and all about the abuse of power. I'm going to sin for this woman, and I'm going to sin for Joab, and I'm going to sin for Uriah, and then I'm going to sin. And that's how it ends. All this flex of bullying power. And then chapter 12 says this, the very first sentence, and then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, you need to come back next week. That's what, that's what it says in my notes. A new player has entered the story. Now Yahweh is going to send. Friends, let's learn from the suffering of David. All right? Let's learn about the frailty of our own human soul, the capacity for sin, the capacity for I'm the exception, I'm entitled. How bad could it get? Be afraid. Be afraid. Appropriately afraid. To, so you will kill sin before sin kills you. Let's be a church of sin killers, <laughs> right? Lord, I bet there's people here that have been playing with sin like a mouse playing with a lion, thinking somehow it's going to end up well for them. They've been 
not going to battle in the spring. They have been neglecting their internal thoughts. They've been entertaining things that will lead to destruction. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would convict us of that. And Lord, like David had these four chances to get out, I'd ask that you would allow us an exit ramp, a fork in the road, some kind of act of repentance that we might act before the damage is done or too much damage. Lord, give us the power of repentance and restoration. Give us the courage to maybe confront, but certainly the courage to take responsibility. God, we want our lives to glorify you in all that we do, especially in the limited power you've given us. Maybe it's just over a little brother, a younger brother, or a coworker, whatever it might be, that we would use that authority and wealth to give and to honor and to serve the way we were meant to, like a good shepherd and a good king. Let this uh, lesson of David speak to us, Lord, vividly, candidly, and truthfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.